What is this podcast, Maxine? This is a podcast by two very fabulous women of color um, <laughs> who really, really love books and are also aspiring. Well, I'm going to say we're writers. We are writers in our own right. Yes. We're writers. We're writers, damn it. And we wanted to create a space where we could discuss writing, the industry of publishing and creation for the current landscape for women of color and writers of color in general. You know, there's this phrase, a seat at the table. Mm. I love that phrase, but it's also like, this is also our own table. Yeah, very much so. You know, we're kind of, we're laying, we're setting our own table and we're talking about the act of reading and writing and how they're intertwined and like what our experiences are from our own perspectives, which is definitely underrepresented. Mm -hmm. So underrepresented. So this to me is like basically a way of putting our WhatsApp chats on audio. (laughs) We chat shit about books and writing and our own writing processes every day. Pretty much. I talk to Jill every day about writing. And it's just worth having these conversations out loud and engaging with a wider community of people who are also going through the same things that we're going through, especially in light of everything that's been happening this year. You know, a lot of industries are on the brink of a revolution and it's important for us to sort of throw our hats in the ring and show that we are definitely writing against the curve. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are people who are writing against the curve who want to be able to express themselves in their entirety and in their authenticity um, without fear of being pigeonholed as, you know, the next Margaret Atwood or the next, you know, Shakespeare. You know, we want to, we want to, who is Shakespeare? I have no idea who that man is. Never heard of him. Never heard of him before. Don't even know. (laughs) Like, I think, I don't know. I don't know. Is he French? I don't know. Sounds French. Shakespeare. It sounds like a restaurant. Yeah. Should we just title this podcast Who's Shakespeare? (laughs) Oh my god, how many people would that put off, right? Everyone, let's do it. Welcome to the Shakespeare Who podcast, hosted by Maxine Sibuana and Jill Damatak-Futter. We talk about making our own canon through books we read and words we write alongside special guests. I don't give a fuck about Shakespeare. <laughs> Could you at least give me someone else? Someone, just give me some flavor. We should eventually be able to say these things out loud. Because I feel like I'll be judged as illiterate if I say that stuff. And it's like, no, I grew up with a grandfather who was very colonized. He made me read a lot of Shakespeare growing up. He read Shakespeare to me going to bed. You know, he raised me on like Greek mythology. So it's like from childhood, I have this like Shakespearean, like classics upbringing. And it's just like, I don't want to read it anymore. It's not even that great. I'm going to say it. <laughs> it was a colonization tool to take that Shakespeare out my mouth because I'm not, I'm no longer colonized. I don't want it. I don't want it. Okay. So that's what this podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're doing this not just so that we can talk about this stuff, but so that we can also bring in writers and thinkers and readers who can sort of raise different perspectives that aren't usually talked about. So we're hoping to bring on guests who can talk about these topics at length with us and learn from them too. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Who are we? Who are you? Who am I? 
My name is Maxine Sivihuana Higenyimugaya, and I am a spoken word poet and writer from Uganda. And I focus my writing mainly on ancestral history, relationships, and interpersonal experience of shame and shaming culture in African tradition. Yeah, and I, I love books. I, I read a lot. <laughs> I read a lot of random things. I read a lot of trash. I read a lot of good things. I find that there's beauty in the trash. And yeah, I and I work in publishing as well. And I want to just make sure that in all aspects of me engaging with creating bodies of work and being part of creating bodies of work that I'm making sure that I'm um, uplifting marginalized voices. And I am studying a creative writing master's at Cambridge University. Which is how we met. Exactly. I remember the first day of our course and just looking around and going, this is actually pretty diverse for a group of 18 people. I think it's like, you know, eight of us are not white. Yeah. I was really proud. And six are women. I know. So who are you, Jill? I guess I should talk about me. I'm Jill Dematak-Futter, and I'm what I like to call an indigenous double immigrant. I was born in the Philippines, raised in America from the age of nine, grew up mostly on the East Coast. And five years ago, my British husband and I decided we were sick of New York City and moved to London, where we're now based. I'm a writer, and I'm one of Maxine's classmates on the Creative Writing Masters at Cambridge Uni. Um, before that, I come from the world of documentary film, and a lot of my work focuses on the Philippine diaspora and stories of migration, not just like actual physical migration, but internal migration. Mm. This, this idea of discovering different worlds in yourself, whether that's real worlds or imaginary or magical worlds. Um, and a lot of that is tied to things like mythology and um, pre-colonial Philippine indigenous tradition. So that's kind of where I am right now. During the day, I work for a creative agency, and I heard cats. <laughs> for this podcast, for this first episode, we're going to be talking about the Booker Prize long list and uh, thoughts and feelings on it. Mm -hmm. We are so psyched to have Midge Gillies with us on this first episode. Midge is a writer and journalist for papers like The Guardian and The LA Times, and is the author of seven nonfiction books, mostly focused on biography. And her most recent book is Army Wives. Midge is also the academic director for the Masters in Creative Writing program at Cambridge University. And out of all our tutors, Midge is the tallest. <laughs> <laughs> and I have the nicest dog as well. Hello. It's really odd not to see you, but lovely to hear you. It's so nice to hear from you, Mitch. It's really nice to have your energy around. So today we are talking about the 2020 Booker Prize Longlist. Um, it came out earlier this week, which is really exciting for us as writers because we like to see all the different people that we're basically up against in the industry. We've got loads of exciting and diverse entries, an amazing judging panel, and we want to talk about the books on the long list that we've read and we've loved, and the diversity of the Booker Prize and how that looks this year compared to past years. And Mid, we'd love to get your thoughts on this. Um, so I'm going to start with the first question, which is, 
How has the literary prize landscape changed over the years, if at all, in your view? Well, I think that this long list shows that um, things are getting, luckily, um, a lot more diverse. I mean, there's still a way to go, but um, I'm really excited by this list. Um, And even though I have only read a few on the list, there are lots on this list that I want to read. Um, And I think you mentioned the the judges, and I think the diversity of background there is really important. And it may be why this is such an exciting list. And I think it's also very interesting that of the 13 novels, I think half of them are first time novelists which is really interesting too. I think they're going to have such a a, a tough job because how can you possibly um, weigh up and judge a writer like Hilary Mantel, who's been working on this story um, in three huge volumes for such a long time and has been a writer for a long time for these new voices, which I think are so exciting, which are coming through. I mean, it almost feels invidious to try and say this book is better than that one because they're, they're dealing with um, very different um, issues. So how can you compare, you know, a, a, an old Tudor with something like... Um, Kylie um, Reid's book on, you know, Such a Fun Age, which I, I can't put down. I know it's a cliche, but I cannot stop reading it. And it seems like it's it's juggling with some really important issues at the moment. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. Mm. I'm new to the Booker Prize landscape in that growing up in America, my sort of references have always been the National Book Prize or the Pulitzer. Yeah. What's been interesting in observing the past couple of years is this question of diversity, Mm. not just in terms of cultural or racial diversity or even gender diversity, but also experience. Mm -hmm. A year ago, Afua Hirsch had published an article for The Guardian. I think she was one of the judges for the Booker in 2019. And she had talked about having to weigh up the Titanic career of Margaret Atwood versus someone like Bernardine Evaristo. Mm. And interestingly, Sam Jordison of Allie Beggar Press, um, who was the publisher for Ducks Newburyport, had written this article about how disappointing it was to hear that because he and lots of others had assumed that the books were being weighed on their own merits and not necessarily including writers' careers. So it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that as well. So I think it should be about the books, but I think I'd still stand by my my original point, which is... Mm. Hilary Mantel is, has told this story about Cromwell over three books and she's lived with those characters for a really long time. So how do you judge that book, which she's been thinking about and kind of, you know, finessing for such a long time, to some of the other um, people on the book list who are ju- just taking risks in a way, which I think is, is to be applauded. And their styles are so very different. And, you know, you can look at Hilary Mantel and the research she's done and how, you know, she's writing in quite an interesting way. But other people on this list, I think, are are really surprising, you know, startling in a a very exciting way. So I think just even trying to compare um, and even kind of genres as well. You've got autofiction on this this list as well. Mm. I think you're always going to make some people angry, whoever they choose. I mean, I I don't uh, envy them their decision. But I think it's wonderful that we're hearing about, you know, these new writers. I, for me, that's so exciting because otherwise I think as a reader, you, you tend to, or I know I do, I tend to kind of listen what my, to what my friends are recommending and that's not always helpful. And there aren't as many book reviews as there used to be. So I think 
trying to read outside your comfort zone is very helpful. And if you can have a list like this, which is showcasing writers that you might not otherwise come across, I think that is fantastic. I feel like also with autofiction on this list, which is by Gabriel Krauss, which is one of my favorite things that I read this year, I find that because he's writing in slang, he's writing in a style that's very different to the way that we normally come to the English language. And I feel like you can kind of compare that to the way that Mantel writes in a different style as well, in that she's not trying to stick to a very conventional way of delivering a story. Um, in that way, be like, each person is quite a different storyteller on this list. It would be a shame just to compare them based on their experience because, you know, Gabriel, I only know this because I have insider information because I work for the publisher that published Gabriel. Gabriel was involved in other things before he came into writing, whereas like Hillary has been writing for a very, very long time. So it's, I feel like it would be unfair kind of to call him a debut and like a novice when he spent his whole life basically forming this story compared to the way that Hillary has been writing this story for since I was born. Um, <laughs> my entire lifetime has been Wolf Hall. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not even joking. I feel like it's like the first one came out the year I was born. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, it would be a shame just to compare them based on their experience within the literary field and not on their life experience and how that's shaped their storytelling. So I'm hoping... Yeah, I'm just I'm hoping that it, it's a factor, but you never know these days. Well, also, I think it's very I mean, there, there are quite a few you could term them historical novels on this list. And again, they're very different. And I think that's really exciting, too. So the book that's set in Ethiopia in 1935, that's The Shadow King. I really want to read that because it's uncovering a, a part of history that I don't know much about. And I'm always drawn to stories where people who have kind of fallen through history are kind of given a voice and in that novel she's talking about uh, women soldiers and I think that to me is fascinating because we, we've heard a lot about resistance in Europe in the Second World War and that's that's a bit stale now so I'm, I'm really excited to hear a new story um, and likewise the novel How Much of These Hills is Gold. I'm reading that right now. Right, okay. So um, I probably wouldn't read something about the, the gold rush, but I would like to read this because, again, it's an untold story from a different perspective. So how are you finding that novel then? You say you're, you're reading it right now. I am. I just started it yesterday. I'm about a fifth of the way through. I think what struck me the most is just how unique Sipam Zhang's voice is. And she writes in a way where the imagery that she evokes, it's very painterly, I guess, is the best description that I have. If we're talking about comparing, so the, 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 that sounds like beautiful language. But if you think of something like Such a Fun Age, where I don't think the language is that surprising, but it's such a great story and it's so well plotted and the characters are fascinating and, you know, I found it quite difficult to read um, during this pandemic. I've got a real kind of butterfly concentration. But with this book, I find myself kind of, you know, when you kind of hide away so that people don't know actually how much time you're spending reading and you're finding kind of corners to kind of look at this book. And I'm finding that with this because I want to know what happens. And so you could say, well, maybe that's not great literature. But I think the issues it's dealing with are really interesting and the characters are really interesting. And it stays with me after I've I've closed my the book for the reading for that day. What struck me with Such a Fun Age, when I finished the book, I think the power of it in being so readable, almost like a beach novel, mm. is that any 
someone can read this and access the complexities that she's mining. Yeah. It doesn't have this challenging language or structure around it. One of the, the beautiful things about the diversity on this list is that it's not just kind of when we see Black authors or Asian authors, it's not just kind of like slave or colonial narratives, that you can actually get a narrative that is challenging in terms of race, of course, but, you know, it's, it doesn't always have to be that kind of way, that it can be sort of digestible, maybe simple, for lack of a better word, English. There's still value in that story. It's not just, you know, a story that's working hard to be beautiful. It's just a good story. Yeah, and and maybe in a sense that's progress because, you know, um, these writers can write about anything and although the kind of exciting um, or inciting incident at the heart of that um, novel is that... um, the, the babysitter who's black is accused of stealing her charge, this young white girl. So there's a kind of racial element to it. But I think it's also about growing up and, you know, friendship and all sorts of things. Um, so it does make you think about, you know, um, lots of things, but it, it it's a great read. And that may perhaps, and we'll probably never know, go back to the, the, the panel of judges um, because I think they themselves are really interesting and very diverse. So we've got Margaret Busby, you know, who was the, the first black woman uh, publisher in this country. We've got Lee Child, who's, um, I, I'm guessing he would be kind of calling out for really pacey stuff. Um, Samir Rahim, Alem Sisse as well, the poet, and then Emily Wilson, a professor of classical studies. So, you know, you can imagine, I bet they had some great discussions when they were thinking about this list. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Shakespeare Who podcast. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. I wish that once the Booker Prize winner is announced, they could at least show us one of the meetings. (laughs) I want to hear them talk about it. Because they are so different, these books, aren't they? I mean, how can you compare them? Full disclosure, I've only actually read Such a Fun Age, and I've just begun at how much of these hills is gold. So I don't have as broad of a perspective on all of them. Maxine, how about you? Which of these books are you into or wanting to read? I have read Who They Was and The Shadow King. I've read bits of This Mournable Body, but I, like Midge, I've just not really been able to read no. during lockdown. I'm going to try to pick that back up. But um, the and I've also read The Mirror and the Light because it's also Fourth Estate and I was working for Fourth Estate at the time. Actually, just really looking forward to Burnt Sugar, basically based on the title. I know like no one should ever judge things based on titles and things like that, especially since, again, working in publishing, sometimes they change the title. So it's not even the author's choice. But I feel like something like that is very, evokes something for me as a writer. And I feel mm. like when I read something that makes me want to write, I feel like it's a good book. Mm. so if from the title already I want to read something I'm like okay yes like I want to like what is brunch sugar what are you trying to talk to me about why is there aloe vera leaves on the cover like I want to know everything like I, I want to be involved in that whole world that it's trying to evoke yeah and I, I gather from what I've read about it is that it's about a mother and daughter relationship which I think is um, really important and appeals to me as well and again a, a universal theme 
I was just going to mention Anne Tyler. So um, it's interesting. I've, I I love her books, but I I'm thinking actually I'd I'd rather get to the other ones on this list first and leave her almost as a comfort read because I I know her style and I admire her, but I'd rather be challenged in, in a way that I think the other books on this list will challenge me. I'm really excited to read The Shadow King next. But yeah, I'm really interested primarily in the non-white authors, the people of color. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say it. Uh, simply because I suppose for me, just having been an immigrant mm. and kind of growing up, reading a lot of what's called the traditional canon, yes. um, I haven't really, in a way, decolonized myself or my reading. So it's something that I'm still learning how to do. So my experience of reading is very different from Maxine's because Maxine is kind of very in touch with herself and she's very aware of these things in ways that I wasn't until recently. So whenever any kind of prize list comes out, I kind of just gravitate immediately to the non-white authors. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you as well. And um, it, it's interesting in a way because one of these novels, uh, Shaggy Bain, is set in Glasgow in 1981. And um, so under Thatcher, which I remember as a very painful time, and I'm half Scottish. But actually, I don't want to read that book because it's too familiar and too painful. So like you, I'm going to work my way through the, the, the authors who are new to me. And I'm, you know, I'm thrilled and excited by that. And normally I'm kind of a bit kind of, you know, tired by a long list. So I think that this they put together a really impressive long list. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Maxine? <laughs> Whenever I see a long list of anything, I'm grossly unimpressed. So to see people, first of all, from my region of the continent, yes. Mazamengiste, yes, represented on a long list like this is really important to me because I find that, especially as an African writer, um, we're very much pigeonholed into this sort of diasporic mm. general Africa as a country kind of view of us. And we never get to hear the different and very, very contrasting histories um, along the continent. Um, even if it is something that is a little bit more commercial, a little bit more, um, a little bit less, you know, you know, steeped in war. Um, it's still very different. And my experience from like, it, uh, is very different from someone in Botswana or someone mm. in Angola, and like I, I want to learn more about my continent myself because, as like Joe was saying, like we have to kind of decolonize ourselves. And I, I didn't learn a lot about African history. I had to teach myself a lot of things because it wasn't in our curriculums because we still have that pesky British curriculum <laughs> being yeah. taught. Yeah. And so it's just nice to see African writers or Asian writers that are not just you know you know, the standard, you know, Chinese or Japanese writer and the standard mm. Nigerian writer and they're writing about something, you know, that is transcending a generation. They have to kind of be forced to be this voice of a generation and voice of a continent. So I'm actually really happy that the stories are so different and the people who are on the list are so, so different. Um, because normally I'll look at something, like last year's Booker Prize, the long list, I was not a fan, apart from Bernadine. Um, yeah. Because this is just the same old people getting recognised for doing what they do well, yes, but mm. you know there are other people who would like to be represented. There are a lot of debut novelists last year who I felt could have been um, included in that narrative and then just weren't. And it was just quite disappointing for me mm. um, as a writer, because I'm like, okay, well, then if I write something that I think is really good, 
will I get that same recognition as, you know, a Hilary Mantel or a Margaret Atwood? And I, I don't know. I mean, this is a lot more um, promising that I, that I can, but last year's list and the lists before, I didn't know if I could. Yeah. Yeah. And you bring up a good point as well, Maxine, in that idea of getting pigeonholed based on being African or being Asian or Latin American. And I think it was Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She gave this talk like 10 years ago, a TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story. And basically talks about what you just talked about, Maxine, where kind of complex human populations and their individual stories are reduced to like a single narrative. It's something that we should be aware of, not just as readers, but also as writers. Yeah. And and I think The Shadow King is a good example of that, because you might think of, if you said Ethiopia, you might think of famine. Um, you probably might not think of Italian, Italian invasion um, or women as soldiers. So that's kind of turning um, prejudice on its head. Um, and it made me think it would make a really good um, kind of companion novel to um, The Wife's Tale by Ada, Ada Mariam about her Ethiopian grandmother. So a nonfiction take on that. It sounds like it's a very similar period, so it would be really interesting to compare those two, um, which is another reason why I'm really drawn to it. And, you know, we often forget what the Italians did in um, Africa as well, so it's kind of shining a light on a different part of history. I follow a lot of writers who are writers of colour. You can't grow as a reader or a writer without, like, seeing what people, like, your peers are doing. Um, so I try to kind of engage with what my peers are doing because I know that as I grow with like all my writer friends, inshallah, we're going to be the canon in the future. Yeah, which is so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I hope I try to kind of engage with what they're doing and how they're um, sort of writing about their identities and their book recommendations because I feel like writers kind of recommend things to you that inspire them also I just feel like I just go into a bookshop and just look for a black name (laughs) yeah but I feel like because I've read quite a few of like African literary books I've tried to branch out so like I go in I'm like okay what Asian books do you have which you know token Asians you have because usually there's like three but then from there branch out to see what their peers are doing and I make like a little tree of books that are related to what I'm reading and that is why I have so many books on my bookshelf that are not read retweet retweet (laughs) yeah no we should maybe be going into bookshops independent bookshops and saying okay can you recommend me a black writer or an Asian writer and they if enough people did that they would have to have some recommendations wouldn't they and maybe that's the way to start you know promoting these new writers Yes, I agree. I wonder, can I mention another prize? Because when you asked me to um, take part in this podcast, it made me start thinking about prizes. And uh, coincidentally, there was an item in The Guardian yesterday talking about the Watersons Children's Book of the Year. Did you see that? Um, Yes, I did. um, So it's called Look Up by Nathan um, Bryan. And um, I just thought this is amazing. So wonderful. It's about a science-loving black girl. I mean, that's fantastic on so many different levels. But then it made me really sad because there was a line that said only 4% of British children's books contain a black or minority ethnic main character. And I just think that's so shocking and sad. We need to think about children's literature as well because 
it's it seems awful to me that you know children are, are only seeing white faces or so many white faces and characters in the books they read and i think that's an area we should maybe think about more yes so i'm very lucky in that my i am very very much the chip off the old block of my father and mother and they did not want me to read <laughs> white books so when i was a kid like i obviously you know you read your jacqueline wilson and you read your yes. you know enid blyton because that in like the school libraries but my parents very much like bought me folk tales they bought me uh-huh. um i think i read Mandela's autobiography when i was a kid oh, um, like but they just kind of made sure that that wasn't the case because they saw so many books in bookshops that were just white faces yeah. and they didn't want me to feel like that was the only um, representation that i could have as a as a child yes. because that's really unhealthy for a child to have i find that also working in publishing children's divisions can be quite disappointing Mm. um, because the nature of publishing as we know is quite white and um, you know if you are in a very white space you won't really feel the need to represent anyone outside of that because that's your entire world that's all you know we wanted to ask whether there's a value in book prizes and whether it's crucial for a writer in their career to kind of get this kind of accolade Mm. or whether you should just kind of pursue your publishing route and just kind of keep going with that. The additional thought I had was relating to this very recent Twitter hashtag called Publishing Paid Mm -hmm. Me and it's about diversity Mm. in publishing and who gets published and who gets paid and it's all this kind of related system that ties into prizes Mm. so it'd be great to kind of get your thoughts on the connection between all of those things well I've just filled in a questionnaire from my publisher about publicity for when my next book comes out which is in a year or two years and there was a question have you won any prizes and I thought, well, no, not since school. And I felt really depressed about it. So I think prizes are really bad. No, I don't. I mean, I think something like I have mixed feelings about it because, you know, only so many people can win prizes. And um, this long list we're talking about is wonderful because it does, um, it, it gives publicity to all the people on the list. Um, and actually, you know, there's there's just ultimately be, will be one winner. And that will really boost their book sales. We know that for a fact. It's publicity for everyone. But I think that, I think prizes can be helpful, but there are only so many prizes to go around. You know, I was thrilled that Sarah Collins won the Costa First Novel Award. That's really exciting. So that's great. But there are lots of people who can't even enter those prizes. And there are some prizes where the publisher can only put forward so many suggestions. And sometimes there's a payment involved. So it's not a completely level playing field. So I have concerns about that. Mm. And also, um, I think that you should be just aiming to write the best book you can because once you start to get competitive it's really negative and that's not a good thing for I mean I think a a lot of writers have quite um, fragile egos Um, so anything that kind of knocks you away from doing your best writing we're sensitive Ned we're sensitive (laughs) we are just flowers really and I also worry about kind of you know prizes that are so specific that they they put people in a a kind of ghetto almost and I, I worry about that being a good thing as well um, even you know something like the the women's prize. I, I I'm not sure whether that's a good thing. And you know if we look at the shortlist, there are a lot of very familiar names on that shortlist. 
um, and it doesn't strike me as being as interesting as the the Booker long list. So I don't know. What what do you both think about it? It arose as a kind of protest mm. against the Booker, like over twenty years ago. Yeah, and um, it's interesting seeing how the Booker Prize has has shifted mm. since then. Um, and now their long list is arguably more interesting than the Women's Prize. I think it definitely it is. is. It is way more interesting. I think the women's, you know, it's kind of like, I hate that this is one of my favorite books, but uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm at mm-hmm. the end, when the pigs kind of become the man, I feel like the Women's Prize has become is the pig that's become the man in that it's just still an elitist kind yeah. of this is not really us dealing with any of the exciting women's writing that's going on right now. So I just feel like the booker is actually working hard to reinvent Mm. itself and actually recognize different authors. Whereas I feel like I don't feel confident that a debut writer of any um, background would win the Women's Prize. I feel like you kind of have to have a little bit of clout. There's also a prize um, recently, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, about um, women being funny in print. And I I think that's an interesting concept because traditionally women aren't meant to be funny. So, and and I remember that list being quite diverse. So I think... (laughs) Anything that kind of says, yeah, women can do this, whereas we kind of know women can write brilliantly. But there's, I think there is, there are still areas where women aren't meant to be good at certain types of writing. So I think anything that kind of shines a light on on that perceived drawback is going to be useful. And I think anything that kind of gets people talking about um, writing is a is a good thing, really. And I think maybe we don't talk about the women's um, shortlist because it doesn't seem fresh anymore just comparing the booker prize versus i think a good equivalent in the u.s is the national book award yeah i've always found the national book award shortlist to be incredibly diverse last year's shortlist was very diverse you have lots of asian american and african-american writers in there and i think that's something that the booker is slowly beginning to lean towards which is really great to watch So one last little bit that we wanted to kind of chat to you about, um, Midge, just trying to be aware of time because this is such a good chat. We wanted to talk about what it's like as writers. Um, So for instance, I'm, I'm very new to writing and putting my writing out there. And I feel like this year I've kind of had to learn and then unlearn how to write for competitions and prizes. Yeah. Um, so I've had my heart broken like five times this year already. And it's only August. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I've learned some valuable lessons about trying to prioritize who it is I'm writing for, mm. which should be myself, mm. and how prizes and competitions change that. I think I sort of lost sight of that a little bit around January and I was kind of rushing to meet a deadline. I was trying to think of what the judges would like and mm. what about for this prize? Who are, the, who are the judges for this prize? Oh, what kind of books have they published? Yeah. And, and then I kind of started thinking of tailoring, sadly, my writing towards that. And obviously the results weren't good. So um, do you have any kind of thoughts or 
advice on how to navigate the competition and prize landscape for new writers? Yes. Well, first of all, I feel really cross that you've been made to feel like that because you're a great writer. So I think that maybe you should take control more. So you should say, why am I entering this prize? And it might be useful if it's a particular, it's making you write something. Maybe it's giving you a prompt in a way or it's making you think in a different way. So I was talking to a writer last night who said that um, she'd entered a competition to write a short story around a a painting in a particular gallery and you could choose any painting you wanted. Um, And she actually ended up choosing one that wasn't in the gallery and she she won the prize and they took her to this warehouse um, in an obscure part of Scotland to see this painting. So that in itself is kind of nourishing and interesting for a writer. So I think she got a lot out of that competition. But I think once you start trying to second guess what the judges will think, then I think you're in danger of losing your own voice. And um, and that's I think that's a, a, a concern, really, because you don't know what's going to go on in that judging room, the kind of discussions they're going to have, whose voice is going to be stronger. So I think you should use um, writing prizes as a, as a kind of maybe a deadline to write something, to write in a different way. Um, and if you got, get long-listed or short-listed or win, that's terrific. But, you know, there are lots of brilliant writers who've never won anything. So, um, you know, use the prize rather than um, let it kind of eat you up because that's that's negative energy that you don't need in your writing. Play that on loop to myself for a while. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, do that. Maxine and I are are very different, both as readers and writers. And Maxine has a much stronger sense of self as a writer. And I wanted to ask Mm. you what your relationship is like as a writer to competitions and prizes. Last year, I was very unsure of myself as a writer because I just, I didn't know whether it was something that I could pursue. And then I got into Cambridge and I was like, okay, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. (laughs) Um, But as I've kind of gone on like throughout our course and while seeing how like the publishing industry works, I'm kind of like, well, regardless of what's going on, I know I'm good. (laughs) So like I'll enter a prize if I feel like, okay, this is strong enough that, you know, I'd want more people to see it rather than like my usual audience of like people that I usually send my work to but not necessarily because I feel the need to be validated by it. Um, like I, I, Would it be nice to win a prize? Yeah, sure, it's nice to be recognized, but I, I feel like I don't want that to taint, taint the way I relate to m- my work because it comes from such a personal place, um, especially since like right now I focus more on like my family history and you know my personal history and things that I've been going through in my little 23 years of life um and it has not been little (laughs) and if I were to focus on prizes it would take away from the work that I'm doing I'd find it more rewarding to submit to like journals or things because I'd I'd want my work to be out there but whether or not it's about actually Mm. submitting to a prize is a very different thing I don't know if there's necessarily any value in it right now for me, but my end goal, just to prove to my African, very traditional family who wanted me to be a lawyer, um, my end goal is to, is to get like, you know, something that they can 
brag to their friends about so I don't have to have them on my back about it. <laughs> but other than that, I'm good. <laughs> what Maxine has said is so sensible. And um, I think you've got to look at, you know, what the prize is. So it might be that it's money, which is great, or it might be that it's a chance to talk to a, a literary agent, which might be useful, or a publisher. But I, I really like what Maxine said about looking to write for journals as well. And to me, that's more appealing because... Um, you're reaching an audience and it might be that you can write about something that you're still mulling over in your head um, and it's not taking you away from your, your central writing. Um, and, and both of you have written some really interesting critical commentaries on your own work and it might be interesting to think about trying to get those published rather than um, going for a prize, which is at the end of the day quite arbitrary, really. Um, and I know that I, I don't know why this has happened, but every time I kind of get onto my web browser, I get links to all these publications and they, they, they know exactly what I'm interested in. And often I think, oh, I'd quite like to try and get an article in there because there's maybe a character that I haven't got enough to write about in a, lo uh, a longer book, but it might make a really interesting article and that would be very satisfying in itself. And it's raising your profile in a way that winning a prize would but you've got more chance of getting an article published than winning a prize, I think. I never look for prizes. It seems like a waste of time to me. And because there aren't as many non-fiction prizes, it seems like a distraction and I've got plenty enough distractions as it is. So I'd rather kind of focus on my own writing and do the best with that I can. Um, and I think it can, it can be really... Um, detrimental and harmful if you start to compare yourself with other writers and how they're doing my husband says you know it's like playing golf you need to play the course rather than other competitors and I say I hate golf I never play golf but I take your point so it can be you know if you look at other writers and think they're doing brilliantly let them do brilliantly you know you're doing your own thing um um, and just get on with it, really, and think about it. I love the fact, um, Jill, that you said you're writing for yourself, and I think that's true, but you might actually think about are there other people that you're writing for, and it might be that you want to um, pull in people who might not naturally read the kind of book you're going to write, and I think it's it's quite useful to have an eye to those people and to think about what would draw them into your story as well. That's fantastic advice. Now, I'm not going to be able to write a thing today because you've made me think too much. <laughs> also, it just reminded me that I'm on the shortlist for the Lucy Cavendish Student Fiction Prize. I forgot about yes! that. Wow, that's amazing. I take back everything I said about prizes not being important. That is fantastic. <laughs> you know, I got the email about it in June. Yeah. Basically, it, it went into my got into my junk mail i've been up on this website for two months i didn't even realize <laughs> oh for goodness sake can you tell us um, what you submitted i submitted my short story that i wrote for the course <laughs> i love that story fantastic um, this is an amazing note to end our podcast on <laughs> as a conclusion we now love prizes <laughs> Thank you so much, Mitch, for agreeing to be our very first guest on this first podcast. Thanks, Mitch. I really enjoyed it. It's odd not to see you, but lovely to, to hear you both. I mean, they've put makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Shakespeare Who podcast. Join us next time for more chat on making our own canon. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. This episode is produced and edited by Jill Damata-Futter and Maxine Sibuana. 